What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. We all need a break from the constant cycle to learn something new, to gain new perspectives. The Great Courses Plus streaming service is an excellent resource to expand our knowledge on a variety of subjects or pick up a new hobby. I've been enjoying The Great Courses Plus while researching this season of Flashback. Lectures like Play Ball, The Rise of Baseball as America's Pastime, History of the Supreme Court, and Battlefield Europe have helped me connect the dots on several stories from history. Right now, they're giving our listeners a special limited-time offer, a free month of unlimited access to their entire library. Sign up now through our special URL. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Aussie. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash O-Z-Y. Thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Aussie. Before we start today's episode, please be sure to support Flashback by rating and leaving a review for us right here in your podcast app. A special shout out this week to our listener, Ruby Two Shoes, who got last week's pop quiz correct. The question was, what 1995 event helped lead to billions in extra revenue for the NBA? And you're all about to find that out. In the meantime, do you think you're getting the hang of history's unintended consequences? If so, answer this question about next week's episode for a chance to win a shout-out of your own. Ready? Fingers on buzzers. What chronic physical ailment did Adolf Hitler suffer from that led him to seek some rather unorthodox and highly consequential medical treatment? Think you know the answer? Take your best guess and leave it as a comment in your podcast app, along with your five-star review. It's the best of times, it's the worst of times. As I record this, both the National Basketball Association and Major League Baseball are sidelined because of the coronavirus. But the two professional sports leagues are hardly in the same position. On the one hand, you've got basketball. NBA salaries have skyrocketed in the past five years. The average player makes above $7 million per season, which makes the NBA the highest paid sports league in the world. And basketball is also now the most popular sport in the largest country in the world. 
1.4 billion basketball crazed people in a country and economy that's growing. It's unbelievable the passion that people have for the sport and for the NBA in China. And on the other hand, you've got baseball. People just don't seem to be as interested in the sport as they used to be. Last year's World Series was the least watched in history. So is this a wake-up call for Major League Baseball? Can the World Series continue to compete effectively? Last year, according to Forbes magazine, for the first time ever, the average value of an NBA team is worth more than the average value of a Major League Baseball team. There are lots of reasons for this reversal of fortune, from marketing to a lack of star power to the mastery of social media. But if you had to pick one fateful moment when everything changed, when baseball and basketball started to go in different directions, well, it might well be something that happened 25 springs ago in 1995. That's the moment when one of baseball's worst players decided to give up on his dream rather than to be a scab during the game's worst labor strike. Minor league ball players have to give up on their dreams all the time. But this minor league ball player was not your ordinary athlete. He was also the greatest brand ambassador that the sport of basketball has ever known. And baseball's loss proved to be basketball's destiny-making gain. I'm Sean Braswell. Today on Flashback, a tale of one windy city and one remarkable player whose fateful decision helped alter the fate of two sports. And a very special thanks to our guests today who joined us via phone or provided their own local recordings during the global health crisis in the shelter-in-place order. Let's go back in time 29 years for a moment. It's 1991, June. If you've watched The Last Dance, ESPN's documentary film on Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls, then you've probably already seen this footage. The celebration has begun in the Chicago locker room, and they are celebrating in Chicago as the Bulls take the Lakers in five. Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls won their first NBA championship. Five months later, just north of Chicago in Minneapolis, the Minnesota Twins won their second World Series baseball championship in dramatic fashion. The Twins are going to win the World Series. The Twins have won it. It's a base hit. It's a 1-0, 10-inning victory. Game seven of that World Series between the Twins and the Atlanta Braves was watched by 50 million viewers double the number that watched Game 7 of last year's World Series, and 30 million more than watched Michael Jordan and the Bulls beat the Lakers that year. So Jordan's first championship might have made for a good story, but it was baseball that truly had America's attention in 1991. But behind the scenes, trouble was brewing in baseball. Faye Vincent, a Yale-educated lawyer and the former head of Columbia Pictures, was an unusual choice to be the commissioner of baseball. He was short, balding, and wore large, oversized glasses. He looked like he should be the league's accountant. And in his first year as commissioner in 1989, Vincent was tested as few commissioners have ever been. For the first time in 27 years, a World Series game will be played in Candlestick Park. The Battle of the Bay continues. Game three of the 1989 World Series, the Oakland Athletics against the San Francisco Giants. I'm Al Michaels. Less than two minutes later, this happened. He fails to get Dave Parker at second base, so the Oakland A's take, take 
A 6.9 magnitude earthquake hit the Bay Area right before Game 3 of the World Series in October 1989. The following day, Faye Vincent addressed reporters amid the tragedy. Well, we've made the decision not to play tonight. That's the only decision we made. It's a difficult time for San Francisco and indeed for the whole Bay Area. Um, the great tragedy is that uh, it coincides with our modest little uh, sporting event here. Vincent handled the disaster beautifully. He was reasonable, cautious, humble, smart. The following season, in 1990, Vincent was again tested when baseball owners started a lockout during spring training in an effort to limit rising player salaries. This is Ryan Eckert, a historian at Monmouth University and author of A Game of Failure, the 1994-95 Major League Baseball strike. The idea of a salary cap uh, started to enter the conversation, and Vincent supported the players in being completely against the salary cap. And so very quickly, he uh, really did not ingratiate himself to his employers and his bosses. His employers? You see, in Major League Baseball, the commissioner is handpicked by a very select hiring committee, the owners. They thought that Faye Vincent would kind of be on their side, uh, having selected him themselves, the owners. And when Vincent came in, he really acted uh, much more in the best interest of baseball than in the interest of his employers, really, who were no one but the owners. The owners can't actually fire Vincent, but they started to put enormous pressure on him to resign. After months of controversy and speculation, baseball commissioner Faye Vincent has bowed to management's wishes that he resign. Although the owners have not announced their plans for reorganization, it seems likely that baseball may never be the same. Charlie Rose was right. After Vincent's resignation in 1992, the owners made a more naked power grab. They installed one of their own, Milwaukee Brewers owner Bud Selig, as acting commissioner in 1992. But the owners were only getting warmed up. One of the men behind Faye Vincent's departure was one of Bud Selig's best friends and a fellow owner, Chicago White Sox owner Jerry Reinsdorf. And if you recognize that name, it's probably because Reinsdorf is also the owner of the Chicago Bulls. The NBA had had a salary cap since 1984. Reinsdorf wanted to apply the same principle to baseball because uh, that was working out really pretty well for him as the, owners of, as the owner of the Bulls. Thanks to the salary cap in basketball, Reinsdorf paid Michael Jordan, an all-time great player at the peak of his powers, less than he paid White Sox outfielder George Bell in baseball. So at the same time Reinsdorf was helping lead a coup to get a salary cap in baseball, he was getting a bargain on the best player in basketball, a star who would in 1993 deliver the Bulls their third championship in three years. The Bulls' three-peat was an amazing accomplishment for Jordan, but he was starting to show signs of wear and tear from the immense pressure. This is Roland Lazenby, a basketball writer and author of Michael Jordan, The Life. The process of winning a three-peat was absolutely, completely, thoroughly exhausting, mentally, emotionally, physical in every way. 
And by the summer of 1993, Michael Jordan was starting to contemplate a career change. You know, his father uh, had long uh, hoped that Michael might consider switching over and playing some baseball just to change up things. His father would tell him, you know, uh, you've accomplished everything you can in basketball. So there was a lot up in the air. And then something happened that summer that would turn Michael Jordan's world upside down and that would put Chicago owner Jerry Reinsdorf in the bizarre position of watching his most valuable basketball asset turned into one of his lowest performing baseball ones. Do you have an interesting tale about unintended consequences from history or your own life? Please share it with us by emailing flashback at ozzy.com. That's flashback at ozy.com. Enjoying this episode? Check out the Great Courses Plus streaming service. It's an excellent resource to expand our knowledge on a variety of subjects, like Michael Jordan, for instance. In researching this episode of Flashback, I dove deep into the lectures Play Ball, The Rise of Baseball as America's Pastime, The Psychology of Performance, How to Be Your Best in Life, and Basketball's Long Shot, The Three-Pointer. With the Great Courses Plus app, we can keep our minds active, escape into this vast world of information, watch or listen at any time, anywhere. Right now, they're giving our listeners a special limited time offer, a free month of unlimited access to their entire library. Sign up now through our special URL. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Aussie. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash O-Z-Y. Thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Aussie. On July 23, 1993, less than a month after watching his son win his third NBA championship, 56-year-old James Jordan, Michael's father, was driving down U.S. Highway 74 in North Carolina. In Lumberton, North Carolina. Mr. Jordan uh, had pulled off the side of the road uh, to, obviously, to rest for a while, and he was shot to death while in his car and was taken to the state of South Carolina and placed into the swamp where he was found. James Jordan's murder devastated Michael. He was obsessed with it, you know, paying attention to every little bit of news that came along, and it made a lot of news at the time. Jordan had long had a rocky relationship with his father, going back to when he was a boy in North Carolina. He was the fourth of five children, and his older brother Larry was a better athlete back then. It was obvious to everyone in the family that that James Jordan greatly favored Larry over Michael. And Michael did not take that particularly well. He had great love for his father, but he was always angrily trying to prove himself to his father after that childhood rejection. And that anger pushed Jordan to work insanely hard. It really, in, in a lot of ways was the motivation for much of his uh, achievement in sports. And Jordan's desire to please his late father would also be behind what happened next. 
In October 1993, Michael Jordan took to the baseball field to throw out the first pitch at a White Sox playoff game. But Jordan was not done making news that night. Let's uh, go quickly to Pat O'Brien. Pat? All right, Greg, a breaking story here. The Chicago Bulls have called a press conference for tomorrow morning, and there's high speculation and report that Michael Jordan will retire from basketball forever. The news shocked the city of Chicago and the sports world, but it made sense to Jordan. He was grieving mightily over his father. And the idea that his father had wanted him to play baseball, the idea that he had unfinished business there, all of those things played into his decision. Meanwhile, that fall of 1993, baseball enjoyed another epic World Series finish. Here's a pitch on the way, a swing and a belt, left field, way back, Blue Jays win it! The Blue Jays are World Series champions! Touch them all, Joe! You'll never hit a bigger home run in your life! That December, the previous collective bargaining agreement between the owners and players expired. And with Faye Vincent out of the way, Reinsdorf and the owners decided to take another crack at getting a salary cap for baseball. The owners argued that the lack of a salary cap was hurting competition in the game. Ryan Eckert. The status quo with no salary cap was seen as unfair because the big market teams could just outspend the small market teams and dominate the game on the field. Even with a salary cap, however, big market teams would still have an advantage. So their solution was not only a salary cap, but also revenue sharing, so that the revenues among all the teams could be distributed equally, or at least shared, to have a sort of redistribution of wealth. But the players themselves were dead set against a salary cap. They, as free agents, wanted to command whatever salary uh, an open and free market would allow them to. Meanwhile, on February 7, 1994, Michael Jordan signed perhaps the smallest contract of his life, a minor league deal with the Chicago White Sox. He was going to pursue his dream of being a baseball player. Jordan had once been quite a promising ball player in Little League. Roland Lazenby. Michael was a, just an incredible pitcher. He would often come in and just strike out everybody he faced in that short amount of time. Jordan threw two no-hitters on the way to leading his team just shy of the Little League World Series. He was also a pretty good hitter. In a crucial moment uh, on the march to the Little League World Series down in Georgia later that summer, Michael hit a booming home run over center field in a very big park that uh, allowed his team to tie the score. Jordan's team eventually lost that game. But that home run was huge for him personally. His father spent years bragging about it. Finally, Michael had his father's attention. The next year, when Jordan was 13, baseball did not go as well. Michael maybe played in three or four games, but he spent most time on the bench. And again, from what we know in retrospect of Michael's personality, that kind of drop-off, that kind of come-down was devastating stuff. Jordan eventually quit baseball during his senior year. By then it was clear his game was basketball. But in 1994, the 31-year-old Jordan arrived in Sarasota, Florida, ready to try to compete with professionals in a game he had given up on in high school. This is Jordan in an interview from that spring. These are the two dreams that I've always had when I was a kid from 
baseball and basketball, and I achieved basketball, so I, I wanted to try my hand in baseball. And thousands of fans and hundreds of reporters descended on Florida to see if he could do it. Many of the other players were not so enthusiastic about the newcomer. The success in baseball is hard won. It is a game of repetition. And so you have all these people with their hard-won experience in baseball. And here comes Jordan, who quit in the middle of his senior season in high school. Still, Jordan brought with him the same determination and work ethic that made him a champion in basketball. And he, he had to turn his basketball body back to a, a leaner uh, baseball body. Which he did. Jordan arrived at training camp early each morning and left late each night. As the White Sox hitting coach Walt Reniak observed, quote, he's one hardworking mother. Well, you, you get the point. At the end of the spring, the White Sox played a crosstown exhibition game with the Chicago Cubs at Wrigley Field. The atmosphere in Chicago was electric. There's going to be a capacity crowd today or close to it. And everybody who came to the ballpark today came to see that man you're looking at right there and see if he can indeed hit some major league pitching. Harry, this is his first time in a major In front of more than 35,000 fans, Jordan went two for five with two runs batted in. He received a standing ovation. You know, he just played well. He had a, he had the kind of day that had Harry Carey singing his praises and all of Chicago aglow. It was perhaps to be the high water mark of his brief baseball career. Soon after, the White Sox assigned Jordan to their double-A minor league team, the Birmingham Barons. Back at the Met, just listen for a moment. You know who's up. Birmingham, Alabama, here he is. Right fielder, Michael Jeffrey Jordan. Let's listen for a moment. Jordan went 0-3 for 3 in his professional debut, but the fans in Birmingham loved every minute. The team started setting attendance records, selling out souvenirs. The fans would break into spontaneous chants of Jordan's Gatorade anthem, I want to be like Mike. Jordan's play on the field, however, did not always match the hype. But through it all, he persisted. And yet here he was, going from an average, below average showing in, in spring training over to the humiliation of being a Birmingham Baron and not being a very good one, of having to play this out in front of all these adoring fans and uh, really being willing to humiliate himself. Soon the media started to turn on him. Sports Illustrated, which had once lionized Air Jordan, came out with a cover that read, Bag it, Michael. Jordan and the White Sox are embarrassing baseball. Jordan often kept to himself on the long bus rides across the South and in Birmingham. He had a rented house in Birmingham, but Jordan would sit out there on the deck alone at night looking up at the stars, thinking about his father. And this was really about his father, about mourning him about reconnecting with him, about finding what they never found in baseball. Meanwhile, back in the major leagues, the owners and players were having their own existential crisis. In June, the owners unveiled their proposal for a new collective bargaining agreement, one that included a salary cap. Ryan Eckert. 
small market owners were really pushing hard for a, a, a strike and pushing hard for a salary cap. But it wasn't just small market owners. There were also at the time a lot of new owners in the league who had their own firm views about labor disputes. A lot of them had bought into these teams in recent times and were coming from uh, the business world and had experience in negotiating against and uh, like busting up labor unions. The owner of the Royals was the CEO of Walmart. The owner of the Giants uh, was the owner of Safeway grocery stores who famously laid off you know, thousands of employees to prevent them from unionizing. So a lot of these owners had been successful negotiating against unions outside of baseball. But those heavy-handed tactics just didn't work out quite the same against baseball players as they did with, uh, you know, like unskilled Walmart workers. Four days after the owners released their proposal, the head of the Players Association, Donald Fear, announced the union's rejection of the proposal. In August, when negotiations going nowhere, the owners withheld a scheduled payment for the players' pension fund. It was an act of war. The owners might have had most of the power and controlled the purse strings, but the players had one mighty piece of leverage, a strike that could cancel the season and the postseason. Sandy Alderson, and this is a quote that I love, was the GM of uh, Oakland at the time, and he compared the strike, the lead-up to the strike, to the number one movie of uh, the summer at the time, which is Speed, right? And... Um, the playoffs and the World Series are the hostages. The players are driving the bus, and uh, the owners are the cops chasing them, trying to, to, to stop it. In the end, they couldn't stop the bus. On August 12, 1994, the Major League Baseball Players Association directed its members to go on strike. Then, a month later... And the other shoe has finally dropped in the ongoing baseball wars. The acting commissioner, Bud Selig, the owner of the Milwaukee Brewers, has just made it official. The remainder of the regular season and the entire postseason playoffs and World Series have officially been canceled. This One of the great casualties of the strike was that the 1994 season was setting up to be a historic one. Tony Gwynn was in the middle of attempting to hit 400 for the first time since Ted Williams did in 1941. Now. Tony Gwynn was batting 394 when the strike started. 18 games left, playing against the Cardinals, Cubs, Marlins, and Rockies, all of whom had really mediocre pitching staffs. Gwynn wasn't alone in chasing history. Matt Williams had 43 home runs when the strike started and was on pace exactly to hit 61 home runs uh, by the end of the season to tie Roger Maris. Baseball fans didn't care whose fault it was. They didn't take kindly to the 1994 strike. I mean, the fan reaction was overwhelmingly negative. Fans were heartbroken. They were crushed, disappointed. The World Series was canceled for the first time since 1904. And uh, it was very sad. And when baseball eventually did come back, a lot of fans were still traumatized and and very reluctant to go back to the game. They really held a grudge. At the same time his major league colleagues were refusing to take the field, Jordan was getting better at it, slowly improving his game. He finished his first minor league season with a 202 average, with 30 stolen bases and 51 RBIs. It was good enough to keep playing. Roland Lazenby. He later, uh, after Birmingham, he went to the Arizona Fall League, which was another victory. I think he hit 260 in the Fall League. Michael Jordan was getting better at baseball. All of his hard work was starting to pay off. 
At the start of 1995, Jordan was not returning to basketball. He was getting ready for his second, hopefully better, season in professional baseball. Then fate and a still ongoing baseball strike intervened. When spring training started, the owners attempted to bring in replacement players. Ryan Eckert again. And they were bringing in uh, washed up veterans. They were bringing guys out of uh, pizzerias and all kinds of, uh, uh, of all kinds of guys, and also minor leaguers. There's a lot of pressure on minor league players to go in and show up to spring training and ultimately play in replacement games. And one of those minor leaguers was perhaps the greatest basketball player that ever lived, Roland Lazenby. The White Sox were eager to deploy him in various capacities. And he really didn't want anything to do with being any kind of scab or doing anything to undermine those players. The owners were pushing the White Sox to have Jordan play some exhibition games to retain some fan interest during the strike. Ryan Eckert. That fact really made Jordan uh, choose a side. And I guess Jordan sided with his fellow professional athletes and made it clear that he wouldn't play. Uh, as a scab or as a replacement player in any subsequent major league game. Jordan announced his retirement from baseball on March 10, 1995. As Chicago Bulls coach Phil Jackson later summed up the development, Jordan hadn't failed baseball. Baseball failed him. Immediately, rumors began about Jordan's return to basketball. The NBA legend wavered. Then, a week later, Jordan issued the shortest and perhaps most significant press release in the history of sports a two-word fax that read, quote, I'm back. Those two words would prove to be worth billions of dollars. That's next. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? 
Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. During the year and a half that Michael Jordan was playing baseball, the Chicago Bulls and the NBA both struggled. NBA ticket sales were down. The Bulls lost to the Knicks in the playoffs in 1994 and were having a rough 1995 season. But on March 19, 1995, when Jordan arrived in Indianapolis for the Bulls game against the Indiana Pacers, it was all forgotten. And I'd been covering the Bulls for a while, and just to be there and uh, to see the insanity of his return to basketball from baseball was uh, a very powerful thing. And it's like the stock market of the American sports experience had plummeted while he was gone. But there was something else that returned to action in March 1995 professional baseball. Two weeks after Jordan's departure from baseball, legal proceedings surrounding the strike were finally coming to a head. Ryan Eckert. The National Labor Relations Board met, pretty quickly voted and ruled in favor of the players. And that was notably uh, presided over by Sonia Sotomayor, who's now a Supreme Court justice. And Sotomayor spoke out almost unilaterally in support of the players, which was a huge win for the players, uh, huge loss for the owners. The strike ended, and play resumed a month later. Jerry Reinsdorf and the other baseball owners did not get the salary cap they wanted. But at least Reinsdorf, the NBA owner, had a pretty big concession prize, one of the best basketball players to ever play the game. The Chicago Bulls ended up winning three more NBA championships, for a total of six during the 1990s and everyone knew what or who was the main reason behind it. All the people around him, whether it was Reinsdorf or Phil Jackson, uh, all of these people owed him so much. And it didn't stop there. We all owed Michael Jordan. When I, I, you know, I just lived on the change that was spilled on the floor of my years covering him and writing about him. And uh, I mean, all of us. I don't care if you were a photographer, a teammate, a writer, the newspapers in Chicago, the city. The, I don't care who it was. They all owed everything to this phenomenon. So how much was Michael Jordan worth to the game of basketball? You really had to be alive back then and have witnessed the phenomenon. This is Greg Leonard, an economist and a vice president at Charles River Associates, an economics consulting firm. People were really interested in watching him play because he was so extraordinary. And um, it really was kind of unique. In the 1990s, Leonard and an MIT professor named Jerry Hausman decided to look at what kind of impact a megastar athlete like Jordan had, not just on his own team's finances, but on league fortunes more generally. We did start thinking about the nature of the relationship among teams in a sports league like this, where you had a situation where the Bulls were the ones paying Michael Jordan's salary. But Jordan is so popular that he's also driving up revenues for other teams every time the Bulls come to town. 
So overall, we found that there was about a 20% increase in attendance. This was in the 1991 season. Due to Michael Jordan, and this translated to about $2.5 million uh, for the other teams in the league. It didn't stop at just attendance. You know, all told, if you add across TV attendance and properties, um, we found a, a Michael Jordan effect of about $53 million for other teams. And again, that's back in 1991 dollars. You can more or less double that. So we're talking about in today's dollars, about $100 million for the other NBA teams. In 1999, Fortune magazine, building on Leonard and Hausman's work, estimated the full value of Michael Jordan beyond just the 1991 season. That included Jordan's endorsements, ticket sales, merchandising, television revenues, and more. All told, they estimated a Jordan effect of close to $10 billion. But Jordan's return to basketball meant so much more to the league than just that. Thanks to the strike, Major League Baseball owners lost close to $1 billion and the players more than $300 million in 1994. And baseball attendance plummeted by more than 20% the following year. Ryan Eckert. I think with the perspective of time and knowing what the effects were, uh, both sides surely would have been able to find a compromise. But I think uh, they're a little bit naive about how bad it would be. And worse than the money problem, Major League Baseball had an image problem. When baseball came back, fans didn't rush back to the ballpark, just happy that the game was finally back so that they could go and enjoy it. But they were very slow to come back. Um, 1995, 96, those are very lean years for baseball. But thanks to the explosion in home runs that started in the late 1990s, baseball started to bounce back. Of course, it turned out that steroids and other performance-enhancing drugs played a big part in that bounce. Consequently, all sides, players, owners, and commissioner, willingly turned a blind eye to what was happening in terms of the integrity of the game. And I, we're just grateful that baseball you know, was back in the public eye. And so consequently, what, what you have is uh, the steroid era being allowed to take root, which obviously going forward led to disastrous consequences for baseball, uh, which we still feel the effects of today. And Eckert says, baseball was never quite the same. I think the 94 strike really changed forever the way the game is seen in the largest fabric of American culture and society. You know, the national pastime is a phrase that's used but I'm not sure that talking to you now in 2020, baseball is the national pastime anymore. As a kid, a day at the ballpark was almost an experience out of time, right? It was the same game that my father saw in the 60s, you know, my grandfather saw in the 40s, and I as a kid was experiencing in the 90s. And, you know, time stands still, right? To go to a baseball game now, it's just not the same experience uh, that I had as a kid. It's just different. That disillusionment that followed the strike really was the final chapter. We've seen now what Michael Jordan meant to the game of basketball and how baseball has struggled to regain its prominence after the 1994 strike. But just how critical was Michael Jordan's decision to return to basketball? Greg Leonard again. His comeback in 19, 
95 was obviously hugely significant. And you can really just see that, I think, without too much sophisticated analysis by looking at what happened to the TV ratings. Jordan's first game back against the Indiana Pacers got the highest rating for a regular season NBA game in 20 years. It didn't stop there. You know, when Michael Jordan came back in terms of like the NBA finals, um, you got about a 50% increase in, in viewership in the years where Michael Jordan and the Bulls were playing in the finals versus the years um, where they weren't playing. Magic Johnson and Larry Bird had really helped take the NBA to a new level of popularity during the 1980s. But it was Jordan who truly elevated the game and its finances. Roland Lazenby. We know today that the great inflation of basketball franchises was really due to the acceleration that Michael Jordan provided in that regard. And nearly stopped providing. All of that cratered when Jordan left and went to uh, baseball. They, they had no compelling figures. But since Jordan returned, basketball has gone from a somewhat local market sport to a global, high-tech, multimedia enterprise. The NBA has expanded, as Jerry West told me, he saw it coming. He told me in 2008, you know, it's becoming a license to print money. It has become just a, a huge cash machine. We don't know where that goes from here, but Michael's return... Uh, was the shortcut. It's possible the NBA could have built all of that and regenerated all that excitement. But Michael coming back, I mean, it was all over the world, and suddenly everything had changed. You know, it's very interesting. Ryan Eckert. What if, you know, the strike didn't happen? What if Jordan's baseball career was really allowed to, you know, flourish? You know, What if he was convinced that that's something he really wanted to pursue rather than just sort of seeing it as like, you know, a passing, uh, you know, obsession that he was able to give up relatively quickly, you know. Um, I'm not sure, but I think either way, it's set up the NBA for continued success. And, you know, it was really a fork in the road as far as the relationship between baseball, basketball, and their position in American culture. Flashback is written and hosted by me, Sean Braswell, senior writer and executive producer at Aussie. It was produced by Robert Kulos, Tracy Moran, Iorio de Gizua, and Shannon Williamson. Chris Hoff engineered our show. Special thanks to the crew at iHeartRadio Podcast Networks, especially Sophie Lichterman and Jack O'Brien. Make sure to subscribe to Flashback on the iHeartRadio app or listen wherever you get your podcasts. Flashback is the latest podcast from Ozzy, a modern media company producing original TV series, festivals, news, and podcasts for curious people. Ozzy's unique storytelling focuses on the new and the next, whether that's forward-looking news and features, bold new perspectives on TV, or brand new ways of looking at history. We live in the age when ridiculous things survive. This is Roland Lazenby again. I asked him about the urban legend that Jordan retired from basketball because he was about to be banned from the game for gambling. Lazenby says the theory doesn't hold up under closer scrutiny. All the old NBA players rode around on trains. They, they gambled like fools on trains before they gambled on planes. 
It's a ga- it was, is, and remains a gambling culture, whether it's talk or betting on any kind of little detail involved in their life. You know, a uh, half-court shot or whatever. Those guys have bet like crazy. And Michael, he was the king of the NBA, so he was certainly the king of that kind of betting. And Jordan bet on a lot of things, especially his own golf games. But it didn't cross the line. No one has ever come up with a scenario, with any kind of idea, with any kind of allegation that he for a minute ever bet on an NBA game. To dive deeper on this and more, head to ozzy.com slash flashback. That's ozy.com slash flashback. There you can find my lecture notes from today's episode, featuring extended interviews, links to further reading, and more information on the changing fortunes of baseball and basketball, as well as links to other stories from history, uncovered by me and other reporters at Ozzy. Please be sure to support Flashback by rating and leaving a review for us right here in your podcast app. And remember to answer this question about next week's episode for a chance to win a shout-out. What chronic physical ailment did Adolf Hitler suffer from that led him to seek some rather unorthodox and highly consequential medical treatment? Take your best guess and leave it as a comment in your podcast app, along with your five-star review. Thanks for listening. We all need a break from the constant cycle to learn something new, to gain new perspectives. The Great Courses Plus streaming service is an excellent resource to expand our knowledge on a variety of subjects or pick up a new hobby. I've been enjoying The Great Courses Plus while researching this season of Flashback. Lectures like Play Ball, The Rise of Baseball as America's Pastime, History of the Supreme Court, and Battlefield Europe have helped me connect the dots on several stories from history. Right now, they're giving our listeners a special limited-time offer, a free month of unlimited access to their entire library. Sign up now through our special URL. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Aussie. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash O-Z-Y. Thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Aussie. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. 
Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.